0: Nathan, go ahead and introduce yourself so that way I don't butcher your brother.
1: No worries. Yeah, Nathan Kiley is my name and um, I'm a strength and conditioning coach by trade, um, but I kind of specialize in, in speed training and currently work as a speed and rehabilitation coach at the Brisbane Broncos who compete in the National Rugby League, which is um, sort of the top top flight of elite rugby league in Australia. i um, been in this role for say, probably 18 months or so now. It's my second season at the club. Um, prior to that, I worked in very different sport. I worked in cricket, um, mm. which, which is a big change in terms of, you go from sort of like a, a bat and ball sport to a contact sport. So the physicality is very different and the demands are quite different as well. Um, so that was an interesting adjustment, I suppose. Um, but yeah, I suppose like um, cricket was the sport I grew up playing. I played a bit of rugby um, as, as a kid but cricket was probably my first passion, so um, when, when I was working in cricket I really really loved that, but uh, the opportunity to work in a new sport with a new challenge and uh, potentially a bit more pressure and that week to week challenge and you kind of really get tested out as a coach in this environment, so um, that's why I, ju- I jumped, jumped ship into, into rugby league. Um, prior to that, I worked in, in high school um, high school setting uh, worked in a few different sports at that level, as, as you tend to tend to do. Um, you can kind of jump in every sort of program, so rugby, cricket, basketball, everything. You, you work with all sorts of different athletes there. Worked with Academy Rugby League players at the Sydney Roosters many moons ago, um, and, and before that, got my first start in, in Rugby League as, as an intern under uh, Graham Morris, um, a mutual friend of ours. So... Um, yeah, that's probably probably been the journey so far. Um, probably been, I don't know, when I started, 2016, 2017, something like that, when, when I sort of got into the field. Um, and, yeah, just enjoying the journey,
0: mate. <clears throat> if anybody wants to know the power of social media, um, Nathan mentioned Graham. Um, I have never met Graham. He lives and will be playing against Nathan's team tomorrow, not when this comes out, but uh Graham and I talk every single day in a group chat of coaches and we've never met and he lives in Australia so
1: yeah, use a social guy. media to empower. Yep. Um, yeah the, the network, right?
0: Oh man, it is, it is. Let's talk about uh, let's talk about the speed stuff because that's what we were talking about off air. So, you know, go ahead and just uh, let's start off with like what's your speed philosophy and we'll go from there.
1: Yeah, cool. Alright. it's uh, a good question. Um, I suppose the biggest thing is making sure that like, we actually expose our athletes to running fast and we get them to do it uh, in an educated fashion. So making sure that they understand the principles of running fast well so they know what sort of positions we want them to hit. So there's an education process there. Um, I think oftentimes social media can be a force for good but sometimes it can muddy the waters a little bit and I think people get caught up in trying to get fancy with exercises and drills and... and Kind of lose sight of the fact that the most specific thing we can do for conditioning athletes to run fast and the most potent stimulus for improving sprint performance is actually sprinting. So <laughs> I always prioritise um, the end goal of any speed session is to get the athlete to sprint fast. Um, an interesting thing that I've been thinking about a lot lately is um, some of the dogma that can be associated with speed training and In particular, like, the 90% rule or the 95% rule that I think gets touted a lot by um, all sorts of different coaches. And I think a lot of it probably comes from, like, the Charlie Francis philosophy. I'm probably not entirely sold on that. I think you can do a lot of really good work at 85% of max velocity. I think if you you build a base there, you can build capacity, um, and you can condition the athletes to handle fast running there. Um, You build a base... And then on top of that, you just layer in those little licks of really high-intensity stuff and, and you can take them those little steps further and further. Um, 90 95% is a really nice rule when you're working with younger athletes who don't have long hit injury histories and um, probably a little more robust and resilient in terms of their ability to recover and bounce back from, from exercise and training. Um, so I think you need to be really careful uh, working with uh, particularly the athletes I work with, rugby league players, we play... Twenty-six weeks straight of the year, contact sport. Um, wow! The guys get whacked, they get smashed, um, and and the game is is littered with short, high-intensity efforts. It's it's sprints, uh, sprint on pond, sprint. It's not uncommon for some positions to have four, five, six exposures to ninety percent plus of top speed in a game. Um, so that can happen. So as as the speed coach, come come my day to be coaching. Um, is more of that necessarily the right thing for them? Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's, hey, let's, let's do a little bit of drilling, um, hit some positions, get strong in them, um, build capacity there, get a little bit of exposure to 80 85%, and based on like, work really closely with our head of performance and sports scientists to make sure we've got a really clear understanding of each individual athlete's thresholds, what they're used to doing in terms of sprinting fast, What they've proven that they've been able to tolerate in the past um and hey look if you're up for it yeah let's get a 90 let's get a 95 out of you uh but that's not always the case so it's it's being really data informed in terms of um our decision making and and trying to be as individualized as possible and, and giving each guy what they need at the right time um i suppose i don't know if that's my philosophy around speed but that's probably the, the big considerations that, that I, I tend to um, think about week to week um, when when trying to, yeah, program for my players.
0: Uh, I like what you said there. Like, hey, you know, maybe there is a, a benefit to building a base at that 80%. Where did you stumble upon that?
1: Um, to be honest, it's probably a, a recent sort of thought that I've started to really latch onto. It's probably something that's happened a lot in the past, um, just by chance, like, you get your guys to do build-ups. They're doing stride-throughs. We're doing some 20s, some 30s. We're just opening up, working through the gears before you realise it. You're actually getting quite a few reps there uh, across the course of a season um, where where they're essentially warming themselves up and getting a feeling for feeling good. And I think that lays a foundation for any faster stuff that you're going to do in a session. But um, it was actually Jonas Dodu. I went to a, um, went a presentation with him recently and... I think he was probably the first person to sort of like hit the nail on the head in terms of saying that the, the 90% rule is is dogmatic. Um, it's it doesn't mean it's wrong. Like yeah, if you if you want to get faster, obviously 90 plus 95% and above is where you're going to have the stimulus that drives the adaptations that improve you. But to say that all speed work needs to be above 90% or it's a complete waste of time. I think that's where um, I kind of thought, you know what, I think you've got a really good point to be uh, to make there. And like, if, if we start a pre-season, um, athletes coming in off, who knows what they've been doing, they've been in Bali on holidays, Like they haven't been training, so we've got to make sure that they earn the right to, to run really fast, right? So that comes through building a base. And in the same way that you would, like, you're not going to walk into the gym and, all right, lads, our training program is heavy singles from day one. Yeah, maybe you do a test of some description to understand where they're at. Like, we, we speed test day one. We we do some R, some 1RM testing day one. Um, but we make sure the athletes are prepared for that, good warm-up and all that. But that doesn't mean that we then just keep going and 1, 1RMing over and over and over again. It's a training program that has progressive mm-hmm. overload. We know where you start, build, build a foundation, build a base that can be... Some, some high knee cycle bleeds. Let's build them out over 40 metres. Working on good mechanics, getting a good cycle, striking the ground hard from above, good foot contacts, and let's build you up so that those bleeds are, are finishing at around 80, 85% of max velocity. Let's let's get reps there. Let's work on getting strong in those positions, build a base, layer that capacity with a little bit of intensity in three, four weeks when they've earned the right to do it. <coughs>
0: I couldn't agree with you more first of all that's why i kept nodding my head um because like you said there's so many times where like exactly your case with uh you know the maxing out right away in the weight room we don't do that so why would you do that on the field my question is what do you do to limit um how fast they run on the field are you putting an implement on their hand you shortening the distance what's your what do you do
1: yeah definitely constraints are um a really powerful tool so in an ideal world, and there are definitely athletes you can do this with. We just ask them to work subjectively at the intensity we're looking for. How nice and is that? And some of right? them, when they can. Some of them, do that. <laughs> not all of them. Some of them are smart enough to do that. Um, and when, and working with a group for long enough, like I know which guys I can trust. There's, like, we got a squad of 30 blokes. There's probably 10 blokes that I'm like, if I ask you to give me 80%, I'm going to get 80% out of you. I've got some guys that I asked them to do 60% and I'm gonna, they're going for a PB. So for those guys, that's where constraints come into it. Um, one of the best constraints that I can use is get the football in their hands because it actually makes them feel like it's even more specific. Like, oh, how good is this? Nate's got the footy in my hands today. This is super specific. He's trying to help me work on running with the ball. It's like, no, you're dumb. I want you to slow down. Um, so that can be a really useful tool. That doesn't always work, some guys i will tuck it under one wing and they're still visualising trying to run the length of the field to score a try. So then we will start working on other constraints. So if we can constrain the arm action, um, we, we can use a dowel rod, a broomstick on the back. We can just take their arm action out of it by going hands on hips or arms across, across the chest. Those are good constraints as well. And then the other constraint that I'll often use is the wickets. Um, probably gone away from it a little bit this season, I suppose. Just, I feel like we've been able to get out of uh, the athletes what we want with those other constraints um, and potentially without wasting time setting up a bunch of hurdles. Um, I don't know if that's being lazy or being efficient, but um, if I'm getting out of the athlete what I need, if the player is able to produce the 85% that, that I wanted, then the constraint worked. So broomstick runs, ball in hand, uh, they're typically the tools that I'm using and they're generally working pretty well.
0: I love the idea of the wickets to slow them down. Um, I remember hearing, oh God, who was it? It was um, Cav, Justin Cavanaugh talking about how he doesn't use wickets because they're thinking and you can't get max velocity out of them. That makes complete sense then, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, they're all tools at the end of the day, mate. There's nothing that I don't use. And I, I kind of get a little bit frustrated when I hear coaches say, oh, no, that's a thing that I never do. It's like, come on, mate, like, cool, but everything's useful. <laughs> like, you keep everything in your toolbox and you find the appropriate setting to use it. Um, the wickets, um, yeah, I agree, they slow you down. Um, maybe it's a good thing, like I said... Early early pre-season, we're trying to build Mm. capacity at 80%, 85%. You know what I did a lot of this pre-season? We ran wickets. Um, Because I don't want them to 1RM every single time on day one. So we can go do three, four, five reps of 20-meter flies over the wickets and build, what's that, like 80, 100 meters of very high-speed running uh, into the program. They're really focused on mechanics. They're getting that good foot strike from above. They're getting a nice high heel recovery. Uh, I think they're getting a lot of good stuff out of using the wickets. It's a, it's a learning tool. Um, it constrains movement in terms of the positions that you hit, and it constrains the movement in terms of the velocity. So, um, uh, yeah, everything, everything works up until a point. So just knowing when and where to apply it, I think that's, that's the key.
0: <clears throat> Let's head on the other aspect of what you're doing there with uh, rehab. So talk through your rehab philosophy, and then we'll just go from there.
1: Yeah, I think um, primarily rehab is managed by, by our physiotherapists, but my my role is to help recondition athletes so that when they return to play, they're fit, fast, um, and ready to hit the ground running. So um, I'm, I'm guided by those guys. Um, they, they let me know what the constraints are in terms of what sort of things the, athlete, the player can or can't do. Um, and then within the boundaries that are set, I just try and like, push them as hard as we can, um, try and use it as an opportunity. Sounds a lot like
0: me, it's like, oh, I can do, like, here's the line, it's like, okay, I'm going to be, like, (laughs) how?
1: Yeah, and look, ultimately, um, you, you flirt with it sometimes, and you don't always get it right, I've made mistakes doing it, but, like, if, if I've got, for example, I've had a couple of guys who had hamstring tendon injuries, um, that were long rehabs, um, but, like, one of them was was a, a developmental player, sort of 19, 20 years old. Here's a good opportunity to put some lean muscle mass on this athlete. We got we got a couple of months here. Like, let's let's go to work in the gym. Let's get an extra gym session, an extra two gym sessions a week in. We can also work on building your aerobic capacity. Like, let's get you on the watt bike. Let's do some intervals. Let's do some long intervals. Let's do some capacity work. Like, this is stuff that you're never really going to get an opportunity to do when you're in with the full squad and training normally. Let's go and work on something that yeah, maybe it's not the most specific thing, but if we can lay a base of aerobic capacity there, like, you're going to retain some of those qualities throughout the rest of your career. So it's about trying to look for opportunities in a rehab and, and identifying things that you can work on that are going to help them as a player. It's not just randomly doing whatever. Uh, it's all going to feed in towards their performance goals. Um, but, yeah, looking looking for, for things that you can work on that are, that are going to make them a better player that w- when they come back, they can, yeah, hit the ground running and... Um, like, we, we don't want them taking two or three weeks to, to get up to speed. Like, we, we need them ready to perform on day one. So, yeah, do as much as we can, I suppose.
0: <clears throat> How do you keep your plan B as close to plan A as possible for any of our listeners out there that are like, all right, I like what he's saying. He's smart. You know, give him some kind of practical tips.
1: Uh, w- w- ex- expand on that a little bit for me in terms of the plan B is close to plan you know, A.
0: Yeah, like, you know, plan A is the the squad's supposed to hit some sprint work um, and somebody has uh, a lower extremity injury, let's say one of them's severe, one of them's not that severe, how would you have their plan B? So they're, the supplemental training that you're doing with them, what would it look like for the, you know, somebody who's out long-term and somebody who you're trying to return to the pitch in a week or two?
1: Yeah, so I'll generally try and identify, like, all right, what tissue – is undamaged that we can overload that ties into what everyone else is doing. So take a hamstring strain injury, for example, um, foot, calf, ankle complex, there's nothing wrong with that. Let's, we, we can we can do some plyometrics, we can do some jumps. Um, everyone's doing speed. They're getting uh, high ground reaction forces, ground contacts. We, let's do that. Let's go do some dribbles. Let's go do, get some contacts in our foot and our calf and an ankle. Um, Let's work on some lateral capacity. So we might be doing some speed into agility. Um, we've got some footwork going on. Like most guys can lateral shuffle pretty well with, with a hamstring strain. Like you can, you can do that pretty much day one. So we can be doing some lateral shuffle work. We can be doing two out, one backs on a lateral shuffle. So two shuffles out, one back. We can introduce a perturbation. They can be punching an aqua bag on the cut as they, as they change direction on their lateral shuffles. So you can get some pretty high intensity work done um, despite the injury just by identifying what tissues aren't damaged and therefore which tissues you can target with development. Um, With an athlete who's uh, less injured, I suppose, Um, say we've got someone who's presented with like some neural hamstring symptoms, some tightness, everyone's doing speed work, Um, not the day for them to go and do it, obviously, based on how they've presented, Um, but let's try and obviously do what we can do with them. So they can probably do drilling with the squad, they can do running mechanics, Um, they can prep with the squad, keep them feeling involved as much as possible. And then we've got those subtle adjustments where most guys, we're looking for a 90-plus exposure from them. This particular athlete, they're going to go do some build-up stride-throughs just up to 70 75%. Typically, if someone's got some neural hamstring symptoms, they're actually going to be pretty conscious of self-limiting themselves. They're probably not the ones you need to worry too much about trying to set a new PB because they're already aware of what's going (laughs) on. Um, Then we might constrain them with a broomstick, for example, or we might just do like a a high knee cycle and just do some bleeds again, do do some reps there, build some capacity, um, finish with a couple of short, hard, five, 10-metre axles, um, and then... If we still think that they're um, able to participate in full training, then we'll send them on their way, and they can they can get into full training. And we'll manage, we'll workload manage them through a training session to make sure that uh, if there's say a four minute block of some really open, fast football skills, we might take them out, and they can go do some some different conditioning that's a bit more controlled. Um, but if there's some tighter skills that we think safe for them and appropriate for them, then they can go and get stuck into it and um, and be a part of, of the skill session.
0: <clears throat> That's unbelievable. I want to ask you, you talked about having them, you know, warm up, do the drilling and be as much involved with the team. Um, how important is that psychological aspect for an injured athlete? Cause I know my opinion on it, but I want you to speak about it.
1: Yeah. Well, to be honest, it's individual. There are some athletes who mm. it is really important for them. And there's other guys who Probably don't care. In fact, they'd actually be happier going and doing like a rehab warm-up. So it's, it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. I've got some guys who they're actually not injured, but they're old and sort of uh, injury-prone, I guess, and we send them to go and do rehab warm-ups when they're fit. But they like it. They feel like they're getting looked after. Uh, on the flip side of that, yeah, if we've got um, most of our sort of younger athletes, like if they've got a bit of a niggle or a bit of an injury, if we can keep them involved without them feeling sort of ostracised from the group, um, that's really going to help their psychology and their mentality. It's going to make them feel a part of things, and it's a team sport, and being a part of the greater purpose and the greater being, that's like that belonging for them. So um, that really does matter, it's really important, and we try and celebrate and make a big point of um, when an athlete rejoins full squad training in a long-term rehab, so um, had an athlete with a with a biceps rupture injury. Um, they come back in their first like just catch pass ball skills with the group, like big hoo-ha about it, really celebrate it. I mean, he's doing the drill with more intensity and effort than anyone else. They're all getting around oh, him. Like, oh, um, I'm yeah, exactly. So, I'm healthy. That's it. That's it. I'm I'm a, I'm a player. I'm a player yeah. again
0: lost.
1: Um, yeah, that, that stuff matters. Um, and it makes them feel wanted and important. Um, and a lot of them derive so much of their purpose through their, um, through their sport, through their, um, their personality of being a sports person. Uh, I don't know if that's necessarily a good thing. Um, in fact, it can be problematic at times in terms of as they get a bit older, it can be psychologically stressful for them. Um, but yeah, like they're, they're, they, they they want to be a player, so it it definitely makes a difference.
0: Um, I was not expecting you to say what you said, and it, it caught me off guard. And it was awesome because you're right. Like it is completely individual. I thought it was, hey, you got to get them in the group and get them back going. But you're right; some guys are just like that. Fuck it, I don't care. Like that, that's a good point.
1: Well, you yeah, like <laughs> I, I think the. One of the really important lessons I learned uh, working in cricket, of all sports, um, cricket's a weird sport. It's very much like baseball. It's uh, essentially an individual sport in a team setting. Everyone is assessed independently. Like, your numbers that you produce as a player are stuck to you, and you've got no one else to blame for them. But you are part of a team. Um, In that setting, there are so many different characters uh, that... Things that make them tick are very different. Their motivations are very different. Um, A batter versus a bowler, like they're completely different tasks that their careers, their livelihoods are built around. So their mentalities are very different. And in that setting, you learn quite quickly that you can't just use a one-size-fits-all approach. You need to develop relationships, understand what makes people tick, understand what um, what motivates them, what their purpose is, what drives them. There'll be some people who play for their family and there'll be some people who play for a paycheck. And there's nothing wrong with either of those things, but if you're the coach and you understand what motivates them and what their purpose is as a player, it actually allows you to come to them with the right sort of framing for whatever you're trying to get out of them. And I think that's so important Um, with all of these conversations that we have with our players in our environment. We spend so much time with these guys and we're constantly asking them to do things. Um, If you can continue to tie things back into the greater purpose for them, um, you're going to have less resistance and a bit more compliance and and we're going to be able to... Sort of work together to achieve that that greater goal that we're both on the path to to get together.
0: <clears throat> you brought up cricket, and you know I think it's a perfect segue into my next question. Of there are coaches out here listening in our audience that same thing—they either go from one sport to another, or they get reassigned, or they are a high school coach, like you said, and they have to work with multiple teams. How did you? You know, get the confidence to work with multiple different sports and not be like, "I have no fucking clue what I'm doing." Like, <laughs> how did you? How did you do it? And what do you recommend to our listeners?
1: Um, oh, maybe I'm just arrogant. I don't know. I just thought I could do it. <laughs> That's probably the truth, to be honest. I don't know. Like, I always wanted to work in cricket. When when I um first decided that I wanted to be a strength and conditioning coach, like working in cricket was my dream job. But I deliberately chose not to work in cricket straight away I was like okay if I just go and follow the one thing that I want to do I'm going to pigeonhole myself and I'm also going to put my thinking inside of a box so I tried to expose myself to as much stuff as possible Mm. I um I went and worked with a speed and agility coach a guy named Roger Fabry, here in Sydney um that's where sort of like my interest in speed training really um blossomed from I guess um Went to the New South Wales Institute of Sport. Um, They're sort of like the state body that support Olympic athletes. So you see all sorts of guys. You've got sprinters, you've got Paralympic athletes, you've got um, basketball players, everything. So you see how different people train. Worked in a high school setting, um, which is where I got my first exposure to rugby. Um, Worked with basketball, worked with cricket. Work with Rugby League, with Graham, um, like we spoke about before. And it was only after all of this um, that an opportunity to work in cricket came up. And by that point, I was like, like, I know cricket. That's the easy part. Like, I'm going to fit in culturally. Um, I probably came in, like, thinking, oh, yeah, we're going to train real hard. And we didn't really train as hard as I thought we would. But that's the culture of the training in the sport as opposed to the sporting culture. Um, So, yeah, I knew the sporting culture. I had a good foundation of exposure to different philosophies around training, different sports, uh, and and that was pretty easy. And then moving back out of cricket to come back into rugby league because of the way I approached things early on in my career. I'd worked in the sport before. I, I enjoy the sport. I watch a lot of rugby league. Like I, I feel like I understand what's going on in the game. Um, so I felt like I could come back in. And the other thing that I really have made an effort to do is sit in on as much football uh, skills-related Uh, discussions as possible, to try and really understand what the coaches want out of the players, to understand the terminology, to understand the philosophy of how they want to play the game, so that I can tie things back in, in terms of, all right, we've got particular things that the coaches are looking for um, around the, the game model that tie into speed development, and that's why it's important for you as a player to be good in these areas and make that connection so that the players understand why they're doing things.
0: Anybody listening, you need to go back and hit, listen to what – I mean, that kind of struck me just because I was a football player, right, playing high school. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to be in the NFL. And like, you know, everything was through the lens of like strength and conditioning is only for football players, right? And I did not do what you did. Um, I commend you for that. And I think anybody, um, you know, listening to this right now, you know, rewind and rehear what he just said because I think there's some, some very big power in what you just said right there.
1: Look, I'll be honest. When I first walked into the Newtown Jets gym with Graham as a university student, like, I was shitting myself. I had no idea what was happening. I was, like, so outside my comfort zone. But I'm so grateful that I decided to do that to myself while I was young, while I was an intern. Like, if I get it wrong in that environment, like, Graham's just going to be like, oh, this guy's not that clever. But you don't. there's nothing on the line... <laughs> So, um, yeah, going full picture to where I, I'm at in my career now, oh, like that was such an awesome foundation and grounding for me. Um, and Graham was an awesome mentor as well in terms of helping me understand how things fit together and ex- explaining um, just the lie of the land for me.
0: Do you have any desire to, you know, transition back into high school? As you know, you're, like you said, you're still young, you know, and so spending time you know, in meetings with, uh, coaches to understand rugby and the passing and all of that. Um, still fine now, but you know, you talked about being married. Do you, do you see that transition out of sport eventually? Or you're like, nah, I'm a, I'm a diehard. I'm, I'm in it now.
1: At the moment I'm a diehard. I'll never say never, but I, I love the, I love the feeling of having something on the line, like the, um, the pressure. I enjoy it. Um, but, yeah, that might not last forever. Like, I, I'm open um, to whatever will come. Like, I didn't see myself moving into this role until someone called me and said, hey, would you be interested? So, um, yeah, like, I'm, I'm open um, to, to what's going to happen down the line. Like, I, I don't have kids yet. Um, there's less responsibility in, in terms of that, um, in terms of my, my work-life balance. Um, my wife doesn't really like me hanging around the house that much, to be honest. So she probably <laughs> would get a little bit annoyed if I wanted to spend more time at home. Um, potentially a good thing for my career prospects. <laughs> <laughs> we awesome. love each other.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, that's awesome. What has been some of the best things you've learned in those meetings where the coaches are talking technical tactical of, you know. Whatever aspect, uh, what have you learned, and then what would you recommend people do when they're in those meetings?
1: Yeah, like I sit there and I just try and picture like that I'm one of the players, so that's my approach. I want to learn as if I'm a player. Like if if I was in so and so's shoes, sitting three rows in front of me, that player there, do I have clarity around um, my role, what my what my job is? Um, do I understand the, the key principles that drive our decision making around what we want to do in different phases of the game? Um, and then which areas that are physical in nature underpin the player's ability to go and do those things? Uh, and that's where I get excited about it because I go, okay, well actually I can help you get better at that sort of stuff, like that's where I can influence our, um, our performance. Um, that's just what I did I don't know if that's right or wrong but uh, it's not particularly groundbreaking um, but yeah like I said that's that's the approach I took and uh, it's really helped me like learn learn the the, uh, the playing side of the game um, I've always watched rugby league like it's a very popular um, TV sport in Australia it's probably the most watched um, sport behind maybe the Australian cricket team they probably get a bit more viewership but Week in week out, the National Rugby League, like I always grew up watching. It. So, uh, understanding the game as a spectator is one thing, but it's completely different to understanding it as a player. Like what players' roles are, um, what what they're trying to do. Like what what's the the tactical side of the game that sets up or underpins them being able to go and do the flashy stuff on the end of um, on the end of it. Uh, that's probably less clear to the uninitiated or, or the casual viewer. Um, so, yeah, I've just tried to sort of be a student of the game because um, in the back of my mind, I've always thought that I was an athlete. So <laughs> I I'd, I'd just Don't try to like, have that right? mentality. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I mean, I think there's beauty in what you said right there, though, because that's probably what anybody should do if they're working in a new sport. They should go to those meetings. They should listen. So that way they can you know, be a part of the staff that they're working with, but they can understand the sport more, know.
1: Oh, it's made a huge difference. Made a huge difference for me. Um, and I think the players initially, when I'm the new guy who's just showed up, I've come from a sport that's not rugby league, they probably mm. are a bit unsure. Like, does this guy actually know what we're meant to be doing? So if you can speak the language, um, you immediately just get that little inkling of buy-in. Um, they they think oh you know what maybe this guy does understand what our job is um, and and that really helps get that buy in that yeah like I said we spend so much time with these players when you ask them to do something um, you ask them it's the tenth thing you've asked them to do today like if if they if they know that you're an okay guy um, that you're not some pretender uh, it helps.
0: No you're right and I mean I I have the benefit of had. I'm only working in the sport that I played, and so, you know, I understand it, and like you said, I watch it, so I think I'll take that for granted, but to our listeners, I mean, there is... I I had to do that when I first started working with softball. Um, I work with the throwers over here, too, so, you know, understanding the subtle differences, like you just said, it's you're going to get your athletes to to train harder for you once they know, like, okay, again, he understands what's going on um, in my sport, so anybody listening to that, make sure you you really let that kind of marinate in on that. So I appreciate that. That was a, that was a really good point. Um, Sydney roosters. Isn't that also where Kier was? Did you guys ever cross paths?
1: No, he was there maybe two years before me. Um, so I, I worked with the Academy there. Um, I think Kier was Academy and then just went straight to senior team in like two months, but that didn't happen to me. <laughs>
0: Yeah, when, um, when you're on the path for greatness, that's just kind of what happens, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, so I, I worked with a guy named Sam Kennedy there. He sort of uh, approached me for the, for the role there. They were looking for someone to help uh, with the field-based stuff, the speed and agility work. And like I said, that's probably um, like my sort of niche. Um, and yeah, I had a really awesome experience there, mate. Like learned a heap, um, got to cu- cut my teeth a bit in, in working in an environment like that. Um, Working with those sorts of players, and a fair few of those guys, I reckon half a dozen of those of those academy players are now um, playing playing NRL week in week out uh, at the elite level. And I, I was only there for one year, so um, yeah, there's a few talented kids in, in the in the academy at the time. Um, we we worked with uh, an under twenties team primarily, um, so it's probably like the last stepping stone before going into uh, full time. Um, and yeah, like I was mostly, mostly looking after speed and agility on the field and, um, yeah, it was, it was a good place to try things. And, and we, we experimented with lots of stuff. Um, and I don't know if any of that stuff has stood the
0: test of time. That makes me wonder what's been the best thing you've learned working in sport. Like what's been your best aha moment?
1: Oh, I have aha moments all the time. Like, I could not pinpoint anything like I'm I'm thirsty to learn and constantly like I pride myself on being really open to new ideas and um, trying to be as introspective as possible and questioning my own beliefs around things. So, yeah, I don't have aha moments that stand out in my career like I'm constantly changing my mind on stuff.
0: And yeah, the, you're, yeah. Like, you're like, Jesus, you're I can I can resonate with that cuz it's like fuck, I have one every day. It's like how can, there's no way to like pinpoint like no like
1: Yeah, there's not many hills I'm like willing to die on. Like if you can make a good argument for why one of my ideas is shit, I'll be like, "Yeah, okay, fair enough." <laughs> <laughs> there's some things that I believe are true. Like I I think you need to train hard. I believe in hard work and consistency and showing up. I I believe in intensity and I believe in competition. Those are principles that I stand by like If we can find a way to make an element of training competitive, I'm always all in for that. Um, I, I believe in explaining things clearly and taking your time to communicate, effective communication. I think that is really important. Um, I know sometimes I'll try and explain things and some people get bored, but if I'm, if I'm going to have my little lecture moment, I'm going to have my little lecture moment because there might be one, someone in the group who latches onto a really important piece of information. and then. Once they understand it, they become a little messenger for you because then they can start telling the other players in a language that's more appropriate for them. Um, yeah, those those are things that like I, I stand true to, but yeah, I don't know about aha moments.
0: That's awesome, man. Um, I appreciate you. I'm gonna let you go about and go to that barbecue. And I, I don't know who I'm rooting for between you and Graham. I I'm gonna be that person that's like, you know what? I just want everybody to, uh, the whole, the sign that's like, I want everybody to have a good time and. and stay Rugby safe. league
1: was the winner on the day. That's what we want. Exactly. That's all I'm looking Look, forward to. All all I'll say, and this could come back to bite me, but we're we're four and O and they're oh and four. So. <laughs>
0: You know what, Graham? I, I don't know if it's going to happen, brother. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's going to happen.
1: They deserve it. So. <laughs> oh, well. uh,
0: anybody that's made it this far that wants to follow you more, um, any social media places they can follow you or websites?
1: Yeah, I'm pretty active on Instagram. Uh, it's just my full name, Nathan Kylie, with an underscore at the end of it. Um, I don't know if I post anything interesting anymore. I just keep sort of posting my workouts. People seem to find them interesting for some reason, but, um, yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah, like, if you got a question or whatever, you can shoot me a DM on there. I'm on Twitter. I don't really post anything, but it is actually my favorite social media. I just find the text format so interesting. Um, I don't know why. Just... Yeah, it stands out to me. Um, but yeah, whatever. Like, it's the same, same username on Twitter if you're interested. Um, I don't know if I've got anything to promote. Uh, I sell some programs. You'll find them on Instagram if you're interested in that. Um, yeah. I would appreciate people giving me their money. That'd be good.
0: Yeah, we'll put it in the show notes for this, man. I appreciate you. And uh, go go eat some steak and win a game tomorrow.
1: Yes, I plan. I, yeah, I don't plan on it. The boys have to do it. But yeah, we plan to. <laughs> All
0: right, have a good one,
1: All right. Thanks, mate. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.